So let's just get a get the whole story here in context. Then we'll we'll back up and walk through it. Luke chapter ten, verse one. It says this. After this, the Lord the Lord appointed seventy two others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So the disciples go out, they do this, they go out two by two, just as Jesus instructed them. And then in 17, they return to Jesus. Days later, we don't know how many days, but we know it's been more than one night. And it says this in verse 17, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So, cool story, right? Jesus gathers 72 of his disciples He says, I'm about to go to all these cities and minister there. And before I go, I'm going to send you ahead. I want you to go two by two. And you're just going to go up to someone's house, tell them that peace is upon them. And if they they receive that, you, you stay there, you stay in that house, you eat with them, you drink what they provide, and you kind of make that your base of operation for that town. And if that person rejects you, you kick the dust off your feet and go on to the next place. And it's, I feel like stories like this, it's, it's one thing to, to kind of read it and think of that. You try to picture maybe what that looked like for them living in the Middle East, but it helps us to contextualize it. So just imagine this. Imagine that I got up here this morning and said, guys, I've got a mission for us. I'm going to challenge you all to do this. I'm going to send all of you out right after this in groups of two to all these towns. You two guys are going to go to Caddo, okay? Y'all are going to Quinlan. Y'all are going to Rockwall, y'all are going to Rowlett, Sulphur Springs. And I just picked all these towns and said, okay, y'all, y'all, y'all head out. Oh, by the way, leave your wallet and your phone here. D- don't take any money, okay? And you're going to be there for several days. And one of you goes, well, wait, what? If we don't have money, what, how's that going to work? Oh, just, just go up to a house. Tell them that peace is upon them. And, and if they receive you, just eat whatever they have. Just, just mooch off of them. It'll be fine. Leave your wallet here, right? 
Like, how careful would you be on picking the house? <laughs> right? I was thinking about that. Like, you go up to the house, you're like, well, this guy keeps his lawn, or I guess his sand. He keeps his sand nice, right? He, he looks like he takes care of things pretty well. But you don't want it to be too nice, right? Because then you might be kind of snobby and turn you away, right? may not be real keen on the idea of someone mooching off of him. You'd be very careful on how you pick that house. So he tells them to do this crazy thing. Right? And you can imagine the amount of fear, self-doubt, insecurity, and how much trust they would have to exercise in Jesus to go out and do something like this. And you can almost hear their surprise when they come back in verse 17. It's like, dadgummit, it worked. <laughs> they come back in verse 17 and it says this, The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. You said this was going to happen, and it did. And then the, I really believe, like, when you look at this whole passage in context, the whole point of it is kind of this, like, kind of this surprise ending to the story where you would expect Jesus to just be, guys, that is awesome. I told you it would work out, and it would stop there. But instead, this, this story of however many, 19 verses, this, almost this whole chapter, like, ends with this kind of twist where Jesus says in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so somehow there's a correction in the rejoicing. Now he doesn't, doesn't like come down on them hard, right? He, he, he affirms them in this. He's very gentle but at the same time, he takes what they're rejoicing in and he wants to somehow adjust it or correct it so that they're rejoicing rightly. And so you kind of have to ask the question, what was, what was wrong with what they were doing? Why was it in need of correction or adjustment in terms of why they were rejoicing? Well, they came back excited, they were giddy, they were, they were pumped up about what had happened. But if you read the text, it almost sounds like the, the reason they're pumped up is because of what, what they had accomplished. Jesus, look what we did for you. Look at this great thing that we did when you sent us out. It seems like that the source of their joy was, was less about the greatness of God and them being adopted into his family and more about what they got to do, more about the part that they played, the significance of what they did for the kingdom. And it's a danger that faces all of us. For every one of us in this room, there's a very real danger that we would take what the Lord has done in and through us and leverage it to point out our greatness. Be it externally or internally, right? Sometimes we do it to others. We talk about, voice it, kind of bragging about how the Lord has used us. Sometimes we just do it to ourselves. We just sit and think about how great of a thing it is that I did for the Lord when I did this thing or as I do that thing from week to week. It's different for all of us, but the struggle's the same. Students and young adults, where are you guys? See a few of you guys. Some of you guys in this church specifically, I know, you've done some really cool stuff. Some of you guys have been on some IGO trips. You've led teams, right? 
Some of you guys have a very strong zeal and passion for the Lord that's, that's rare among folks your age. You're living lives that honor Him. And it can be tempting to use those experiences and use those things God has done in and through you to puff yourself up and exhaust yourself and say, look, yeah, look, look what I've done for the Lord. And I'm only 22 years old. Can you imagine how great I'm going to be 10 years from now? I'm off to a good start. Maybe you're just a, a good, trustworthy dude in Greenville, Texas, well thought of in the community, and you attribute that to your faith and your diligence that God has worked in you. You've become someone who's built a great reputation for yourself and your family. And there's a danger for you that you begin to rejoice and find your joy in who you have become. And you can hold your head high and walk proudly in what you've done for the Lord and how faithful of a person you are and how great your reputation is in Greenville and at CF. Deacons and small group leaders, the temptation to do this grows the longer we've been in the faith. Right? It's almost like the more mature we are in the faith, the, the longer we've been at it, the greater of a temptation there is to take the things the Lord is doing through us and leverage it to exalt ourselves rather than God, be it externally to others or internally to ourselves. It's, it's, not, that, it's not that being in the faith in a long time or serving for a long period of time or, or growing, it's not that those are bad things, right? It's just like, just like when we get older, it becomes harder and harder to keep up with technology, right? I mean, when I say old, I mean like, 36. <laughs> I'm still, I uh, feel like I'm already falling behind on things. Like one day I wake up and all of a sudden I'm still on Facebook and Instagram and everyone else has moved to Snapchat, right? It's not, that, it's not that being in your 30s or growing, maybe not being as tied to those things is a bad thing, but there does come a struggle of staying in touch. And in a similar way, we, when we grow in our faith, there is kind of a, a side effect that this temptation, I think for most of us, can become stronger and not weaker. Deacons and small group leaders, you may be able to maybe look back over the last few weeks, months, or years and just see very clear, visible evidence of how God has used you to minister to this body. That's a good thing. But with that growth comes the ever greater temptation to say, wow, Jesus, look what I've accomplished here. Man, where would this church be without me? And had I not stepped in and done this role, man, things would be, things would be a little rocky around here. We begin to use the way, the, take what the, the way the Lord has used us and leverage it to exalt ourselves. Pastors, how God used your preaching or counseling or leadership, it's easy to take that and go, Jesus, look at this great thing I did for you. You've truly used me to shape the lives of others and boast in ourselves as that happens. One of the striking things about this story is that although, although Jesus corrects these guys, there's this gentle correction, he actually, he actually agrees with them. Did you catch that? Look there again in verse 17. It says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. 
Lord, we, we did some great things. And then verse 18, Jesus, he agrees with them and he affirms them. He said, yeah, it's true. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, you're, you're right. I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So he affirms what they're saying. And some of those statements I made earlier, like, man, this, this, this church wouldn't be as good if I weren't here. That's, it might be true, right? I mean, that may not be a completely false statement. If you young adults and college students thinking, like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty salty person. I've, I've done a lot more than most people my age. That, that may be true. But what are you going to do with that? Where do you take that? Do you, do you use that to exalt yourself? Does it puff you up? Or are you humbled and grateful that God would even consider letting you play any part at all in this work of his? Does it floor you that, that God would, in his mercy, allow you to play any part whatsoever in the advance of his kingdom? Side note there, it is, it is cool how Jesus approaches them so gently in that. Like he, he detects this, almost this pride in them. And rather than just like slamming the brakes on them and, and killing all of their, their joy from what just happened, he kind of he eases into it, right? I mean, just like, I imagine like a, <laughs> imagine one of my kids pouring themselves a bowl of cereal and saying, Dad, look, I, I, pulled my, I, I poured a bowl of cereal. I did it. You've been showing me this and I... You said I could do it, and I did. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's great. Um, you did do that. That is true. It is also true that milk expires if you leave it out on the counter for a long period of time. <laughs> it's also true that there's milk all over the floor, right? Like, he affirms them, and, and he very gently tries to adjust and correct what's wrong and how they're rejoicing. Because it's not a bad thing to rejoice in what God does through you. There's a right way and a wrong way to do it. I think Paul provides us such a great example of that. In Philippians 4.1, you see Paul rejoicing in how God used him. That's not, it's not in, and of itself a, in and of itself a bad thing. Philippians 4.1, Paul's talking about this church and, and who they are and how he takes pride in them. And he says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. He looked at this church, many of whom he's led to the faith in this church that he's planted. He's gotten it off the ground, and he says, you guys are my crown. Like, I boast in what you guys have done. I'm proud of you guys. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, he says this, For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. So the idea of finding joy in how God has used you is not bad, but here's the kicker. Romans 15, 18, Paul also says this, I will not venture to boast about anything except that which Christ has accomplished through me. And I know when we talk about that, it almost, if you've been in church a long time, that can almost sound a little cliche, right? Like, we have to boast not on what we've done, but what Christ has done through us. Like, yeah, yeah, right? I know, I get that. That it's not us, it's just God working through us. But we often flip it, because in, in God's paradigm, his, his, his goal, God's desire, is always that he would get the glory. 
he would get the accolades, he would get the credit, he would get the admiration, he would get the praise, the worship, the attention, the affection of others, that he is on the receiving end of that. He gets the glory, the credit, the recognition, and we get the joy. But sometimes in our, in our, in our twisted minds, right, we're all prone to flip it. We're all prone to go, I'm, I'm, I did these great things, and I bet God is really happy now because of how I, how I clean this thing up. But God has a, taken a lot of joy in how I did this, and, and now everyone thinks really highly of me. Right? We flip it, and we want to get the accolades, we want to get the credit, we want the admiration, we want the recognition. When what God wants us to do is give that to Him, boast in Him alone, Remembering that he's the hero. And we drift into that because we love the praise of man. All of us. I mean, some of us more than others. Some of us seek it out in different ways. But all of us have a temptation to go after the glory that belongs to God. To get, to get the accolades. To get the praise. To get the recognition. And we'll take what he does in us. How he sanctifies us and informs us into the image of his son. And how that enables us to impact others and minister to others. And we'll, we'll twist it to exalting ourselves to get the credit, to get the accolades. Rather than letting him have that and just being grateful that he chose to use us as part of his plan. That's, that's what they fell into. It's part of why Jesus rebukes them. There's, a, there's another element too, we'll get to it next week. A bigger, bigger element I think, but... That's part of it. And so question this morning, I think, for us is, how do we fight that? Like, if all of us have that, and hopefully, hopefully you agree that you do, that, that somewhere in you there's a temptation to take even the good things the Lord does in you and leverage it so that you would get the glory, you would get the attention, you would get recognition and honor and accolades, pats on the back, whatever that looks like. How do you, how do you fight that? Right? How do you, the desire is there. How do you combat it? I'm just going to give you two, two ways I think we do that. The first one is to remember why God called you. I love what happens right after this. It's one of those weird things in your Bible where you may have kind of a paragraph break there where it looks like, we're, okay, we're moving on to a different story, but if you really just read the text and kind of ignore that break, it seems to be what happened right afterwards. So look there in verse 21. After Jesus says, don't rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In verse 21, he says this. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Do you catch what he did there? He prays in front of them. He's like, guys, let's pray. God, thank you that you've done all these things, not through people who are wise and understanding, but through these little children. <laughs> like, can you imagine if I said something like that this morning, right? What if I prayed at the end and I said, God, thank you that you've chosen to advance your kingdom through this little insignificant church of nobodies, rather than those who are wise and understanding, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of an insulting thing for Jesus to say, it would seem. But he's He's pointing out that this, this group of 72 and the, and the 12, that they're not an impressive group of people. They're just not. They were up in Galilee. 
They weren't in the capital city. They weren't the people you would want on your team if you were going to revolutionize something or start a movement. They weren't famous. Apparently, they weren't very smart. (laughs) Think about the 12 disciples. How did they end up there? Not because of how wise they were. Not because they excelled in their careers or their circles. Fishermen, tax collectors, nobodies. God called them not because, but despite. Not because they were gifted and influential and powerful and had a lot going for them, but despite the fact that they didn't. God calls the unimpressive and the ordinary and entrusts the kingdom to them, gives the keys of the kingdom to children and fishermen. And he does that to show that it's by his greatness and not man's. You guys want to flip with me to 1 Corinthians 26. It's probably the best, most explicit teaching of Paul on this. 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 26. Paul says something very similar to what Jesus said to them. He's talking about the Corinthian church and how not many of them were very smart or influential or powerful. Not the kind of people you would go after if you wanted to build something significant. 126, Paul says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. I just can't believe he says this. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Y'all weren't very smart. (laughs) Not many were powerful or of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because he is the recipient of the glory and the honor and accolades. And we have joy that he would even allow us to play any part at all in what he's doing. And the reason I say remember why you were called is this, is that it will be very difficult to seek your own exaltation if you are regularly reminding yourself that God called you Because he wanted to magnify himself through your weakness. That God did not call you because of all the great things you could bring to the table. That's not why God calls you to himself. In fact, these these two passages kind of say the opposite. He probably called you because you didn't bring a lot. So it would be obvious that when he began to form you into the image of his son and use you, that it was his power and his strength and not what you brought to the table. Do you think God put me here in whatever position you have because or God put me here despite? Not God put me here because of my strength, but despite my weakness. Leaders, do you begin to think it makes sense that God put me here because I was able to do this and that. And the church would be a mess if I hadn't stepped in. Or are you bewildered that God would choose to entrust this significant work of the kingdom to a child like yourself 
That's, that's not to say God doesn't give us gifts, right? I mean, everyone who's a child of God, God does give us certain gifts, certain, certain strengths, and he wants us to employ those for his glory. But not in a way that puffs us up. Not in a way that we forget that there was a point where we didn't know him, wanted nothing to do with him, brought nothing to the table, and he called us and he gave us a job, despite who we were, not because of who we were. So I would encourage you to remember why God called you. No, it wasn't because of your strength, probably because of your weakness. The second thing I would say is just to embrace obscurity. One of my favorite authors, Kevin DeYoung, he said it like this. He said, um, in the grand scheme of things, most of us are going to be more like an Ampliatus or a Phlegon than an Apostle Paul. And most of you guys are wondering who Ampliatus and Phlegon are, rightfully so. They get about half a verse in our New Testament. Romans chapter 16, verses 3 through 16, Paul just kind of at the end of his letter talks about, greet all these people. Here's all the people I want you to say hi to for me. And in those 13 verses mentioned, so about half a verse each, that's all the airtime they get in our Bibles. I want you to look specifically at 12 and 13 if you turn there. He says this, Greet those workers of the Lord, Tryphiana and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Persis, I love that. Greet Persis, he has worked hard in the Lord. I love this list of names because it's, it's like the definition of obscurity. That's all we know about Persis and all we'll ever know about him. He worked hard in the Lord. There's no trips no letters, no journeys. And yet in the kingdom of God, for every one Paul, there are thousands of purses, right? There are thousands of people who are living lives who are obscure by the world's standards, but significant by God's. He says, Greet Ruth is chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. So Rufus's mom, Rufus is a cool name. We don't even get his mom's name. We know she's cool because she named her son Rufus, right? But greet Rufus's mom. She's been like a mother to me. Would, would we embrace the idea that maybe that's our role? <laughs> that maybe we're not Paul? <laughs> maybe no one's, maybe we're not going to receive a lot of attention, a lot of credit, if we were never going to write a book and a hundred years from now, no one's going to remember us. Maybe in an old photo album or computer file, it's collecting dust, right? But we embrace obscurity and be content that we don't have to have great names because our God has a great name. We don't have to be great because God is great. We don't have to get attention and accolades and credit and glory because God is going to get all that. And we have the joy of being a part of it in any way at all. 
most likely, most of us are more of a Persis than a Paul. But we don't want to identify with them because they're obscure, they're obscure, indistinct, not readily seen or heard. The reality is, those of you who are deacons in this church, you're probably not the best deacon in this church. I guess one of you is. <laughs> Statistically, it would have to be true. How many deacons are there? Anybody? 26. 25 of you are not the best deacon in this church. And you know what? That's okay. It really is. Because God is great. You don't have to be. He wants you to be faithful. He wants you to fan into the flame the gift he's given you. He wants you to dive in and serve and give it your all. You don't have to be at the top. I'm not the best or most gifted preacher to ever stand here. Amen? Well, awkward. Oh, do we say it? <laughs> I don't know. That's okay. It really is. He's given me a part to play in his kingdom. That's enough. Man. You're probably not the best small group leader in this church. Even if you're the best one in this church, you're probably not the best one in Hunt County. You're probably not. It's okay. You don't have to be great. God is great. Clint is probably not the best worship. Well, actually, take that back. Students, you're probably not the strongest Christian leader to walk the halls of your school. Probably not. That's okay. Moms, you are probably not discipling your kids better than anyone else in Greenville. It's okay. God is great. You don't have to be. Maybe God doesn't need that. Maybe God want, what God wants for you as a man or a woman is that you would be a Persis who works hard. Shares the gospel as opportunities arise and is faithful to your spouse, gives to the church and supports the missions organization, serves, contributes where you can in the midst of busyness. Maybe that's enough. Because he's given you a part to play. And that's enough. You don't have to shoot off fireworks or be great. I've got to kill the part of me that longs to be the Paul. And I've got to embrace obscurity. Walking in light of the idea that rejoicing rightly means finding joy when God is exalted and he allows me to play any part at all in this. Kingdom of God is advanced primarily through those who are obscure. For every Hudson Taylor or Lottie Moon, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of missionaries who serve faithfully in China whose names we don't know, who never had a book written about them. That collectively had a greater impact than Hudson Taylor or Lottie Moon or any one person. 
Are you okay with being a part of the cumulative effect of the kingdom? Just playing your role. It's enough if God's enough, right? We don't have to be great because God is. It's a great message if you're in this room today and you're, you're not believing Jesus, you would say, I'm not a Christian. I don't, I don't know that I'm in right standing with God. I wouldn't say I'm following Jesus. His invitation to you is not that he needs you to be great. He doesn't. His invitation to you is that if you would believe in Jesus and follow him, that you would have a heavenly father who loves you just as you are. Not because of anything you bring to the table, but despite your sin and your weakness and your failures. That he loves you and he cares for you. Wants to know you, wants to be your friend. I took my son camping those last couple days. Man, it was, it was awesome. You guys ever been to Beaver's Bend, Oklahoma? Man, I'd never been before. It was, it was awesome. Me and a buddy of mine, Scott Hooper, went. We took our, our sons. And uh, just perfect weather. Like, we got there early, let the kids skip school, which is always, you know, a way to earn some points with them, right? So pull them out of school. We get there. We set up. Make a little fire, just just in, just chilly enough where you're wearing long sleeves, but you're not cold. Scott's out there pulling rainbow trout out of the river. I'm cooking up some grilled chicken. We eat good. It's getting dim, but not dark. And it's like Scott looks at me. He's like, "Man, could we have picked a better time to do this?" And it's I kid you not. It's like someone said, "Cue the eagle," and this bald eagle soars. <laughs> Right across the river in front of us, and it's like, I was about to say it couldn't get any better, but then that happened, right? It's just amazing, just enjoying that with my son, just having just this great time. And I'm thinking about my son, and I'm thinking like, and I said as much later, like, man, this is fun, and I love you for my son, Jackson. You know what? I just, I like being around you. Like, I just, I like having you here with me. You're a fun guy to be around. And the invitation of Jesus is that, that it's not because Jackson helped a lot. <laughs> if anything, he made it harder at times, right? Like, but that's the invitation Jesus offers you, is that if you would believe and trust him, that God would be to you that kind of a father. Not, 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 a, not a distant God who is constantly disappointed in you and wanting you to make up the difference. But a good father who not only loves you as part of his family, but legitimately likes being around you. That that is who God offers himself to be to us. We would trust Jesus that we don't have to be impressive. We don't have to do some great thing or bring a lot to the table. But that he just adopts us as his children and he's our father. That's enough. That's enough. You don't need exaltation and accolades when God likes us and wants to be around us as our Father. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would rejoice rightly. I thank you for these songs that help us do that, that, that don't point us to, be weird if they did, but that, that don't point us to what we've done, but point us to who you are and what we've done. And God, thank you for this time we have this morning to intentionally fix our mind and our attentions on that. 
And I pray that in what's, what's left of this worship service, that you would enable us to do that, to see your greatness and be content. Content that we don't have to be great because you are. In Jesus' name, amen.